Hi everyone, I'm Mo and I'm the founder and CEO at Product Faculty. In this podcast, you will hear from Marty Kagan on a broad range of topics from product strategy, product discovery, and empowered product teams. Marty will also break down a common myth that empowered product teams only work where you have the caliber of folks at companies like Google, Facebook, or Amazon. It's not the caliber of people that make great empowered teams. It's the strong coaching that product managers get at these companies that makes them empowered. Empowered product teams don't need less management, they need better management. Let's dig in. You have talked about the benefit of being co-located. What advice do you have for product teams to be able to work effectively, given that we don't have the option to be co-located? Right. Product teams in general is really doing two kinds of things. They're doing discovery work, in other words, figuring out what to build, and they're doing delivery work. In truth, the nature of remote employees is different for discovery versus delivery. In my experience, for delivery, it really doesn't matter that much to have the people just remote. It's pretty much a straightforward trade-off. But for discovery, which is really where the innovation comes from, that's where it has a bigger impact. Discovery happens, innovation happens through real collaboration. And I don't mean that as a buzzword. I just really mean in practice, a product manager, a designer, a tech lead, having their heads together around the prototype, that's kind of where it happens. Is that impossible to do uh, virtually? No. In fact, the tools have really never been better, but there are some realities that get in the way. So what we've done is we've moved from a collaboration model to basically an artifact model. At that point, we are on a fast train to waterfall is what we're on. And it just goes back to all those issues that we used to have. Is that because the people are remote? No, it's just a sort of an unintended consequence of the fact that we're not just going to lunch together and chatting about this. There's also some very pragmatic things that show up. A lot of people working from home just don't have uninterrupted time. These are the kinds of things you really have to watch for, you know, when your team is working remotely. Should we be doing user research right now, given that so much is different about the world? What we learn about our customers, is it going to be valid post-COVID? Should we hold off on user research or should we double down and do user research? Coincidentally, one of my favorite design user researcher thinkers in the world, actually, I'm encouraging her to write a book on this topic. Her name is Audrey Crane. She's a partner at one of the big design agencies, Design Map. And she wrote about this exact topic. I thought it was one of her best articles ever. And it really tackled head on that question. Should we be doing research now? And if so, should we extrapolate to the post-COVID environment? And she makes a very strong argument that this is not just a good time to do it, it's one of the best times to do it. So much emotion is laid there. It is much easier for user researchers to get at the real insights. The the next question is around product managers learning to do user research. Now, some companies, you are lucky to have a user research team who you can rely on. If you don't have that, How much should a a product manager learn about user research? Should they be able to go, let's say, run a contextual inquiry study on their own? 
you don't have to have a user researcher on staff, although I love that, but you do need a designer on staff. And when I say a real a product designer, that's somebody who's, they're trained in service design, interaction design, visual design, and user research. The good yeah. user researchers will get to insights a lot faster and a lot more reliably than somebody yeah. who's not trained in it. And if you're a, a product company and you don't have a product designer, that's an order of magnitude larger problem than who should do user research. So, and I, I should also say, there's no reason a product manager couldn't learn these skills. But what bothers me is the product manager shouldn't have time to learn these things or do these things. Not if they're a real product manager doing their job. You said the best teams are running 15 experiments a week, 10, 10 to 20, but on average 15. That's like three a day. Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on that? And I think it's a really inspirational number for all the rest of us to think about because we're not there. An iteration is very loose, right? It might be just a small change to an existing prototype, or it might be three different workflows for the same problem. And each iteration, the only, only real rule is each iteration should try at least one thing new. The main thing is getting good at prototypes. Back to that topic of product designer, they're the ones that create most of the prototypes. About yeah. roughly 90% of the prototypes are created by your product designer. And there's a whole suite of tools that are there for designers to create prototypes. We, you have to remember that that idea of 50 iterations a week is a vanity KPI. It's not a business result. I do encourage teams to get good at this because I think if they're good at this, there's a much better chance that they'll actually solve real problems yeah. because they can try more ideas. They can try more approaches. But uh, I also point that out because I've met several teams that think that because they can do 50 iterations per week, they are successful. Mm. And that's not true. In your book, you talked about some of the core things that a product manager should know are things like if they're getting into product and they're, they don't have a technical background, take a CS course, uh, take a general business course. Do you think that learning about product growth marketing positioning is becoming more and more important given that now we have a plethora of products out there yet not all of them get used should the product manager have some capabilities in understanding product growth given that it's easier to launch products but it's becoming harder to differentiate your product and get noticed you mentioned growth for sure you also mentioned differentiation most of what you talked about is product for example, growth is absolutely right at the heart of product. Those are one of the main goals. Most companies, they care about growing, and they also care about, at some level, profitability, which usually means things like reducing costs as well as growing. So growth is right at the heart of product. Growth marketing, growth hacking is kind of the, that's product, but it's product as applied to the funnel growth strategies. The other big thing though you were talking about is really the product marketing role. And that's really, they're responsible for go-to-market strategy. And virtually every category today has dozens, if not hundreds of players. So the product's job really is to make sure that if people try it, they at least really love it. But what if they've never heard of you? Product marketing is a major area in and of itself. Every good 
marketing person I know will tell you that the best way to be differentiated is to actually be a great product. Start with good product that retains and engages people, then worry about marketing because otherwise you're wasting your effort. And money, right? And effort and money, yeah. In your book, you talked about like very clearly that how you can think about product strategies. Quite simple. Think about uh, your market size, your go-to-market, as well as time to market. And that TAM, GTM, and TTM were like really good descriptions of how you could go to market. My question is, why does a successful company not know this and fail? And the example I have is of this, you know, AirPod, HomePod, which is an Apple product. Mm -hmm. In all aspects, this is a failure. It only has 5% of the market share. Now, if I read your book and I apply simple TAM, total addressable market, I'm like, who's going to buy a $450 HomePod? I buy it because I love Apple products. And when you have empowered product teams and really smart people, why are they not doing these basic calculations before going into discovery? Or your, your opinion may be that it's not a failed product. Well, you know, and the truth is we'd have to see some more. We'd have to know more about Apple's vision and product strategy to know if they would consider that a failure or not. I will say this in the book, Inspired, you know, that was aimed at product teams and how product teams solve hard problems, product discovery. I felt like I needed to talk a little bit about vision and strategy because that's the context. But there is a lot more to product vision and strategy. I've been writing about that heavily in the last year because I've been focused more in the last year on the leaders. And the leaders yeah. are the people responsible for your product vision and your product strategy. That's often the difference between great companies and the rest is they really do have a serious, well-thought-out, data-driven, insight-driven product strategy. Have you noticed that growth to optimization is getting less and less valuable because customers are becoming more sophisticated? They understand product design and UI and UX, and, and that's generally getting better. So the gains that you can get through optimization are getting less and less. This is just a thought. Yeah, it's a good question. And honestly, I haven't thought about it in that framing because in general, I'm a big fan of doing optimization. As soon as you have something live with real traffic, obviously, if you're enterprise software and you've got five customers and you don't have a lot of traffic, this is not the technique for you. But if you've got thousands to millions of customers or more, this is great. There are great techniques. But the problem I see more often is that companies only do optimization. No matter how good they are, eventually they will see diminishing returns. And it usually doesn't take all that long. I try to explain to them, you should continue doing optimization. It's easy techniques that we do in the background all the time. The breakthroughs will not come from that. They'll come from discovery. You know what's really going on in most of those companies is they're scared. They're afraid to take risk. Because of that, optimization is great because it's super low risk, super easy. You can be smart about how you take risks in discovery, and that's really what they need to do. Marty, would you be able to just kind of describe in a minute what the difference between an empowered product team versus a feature teams? There's really three kinds of teams I see out there. The first kind of team I, I don't even really talk about, I refer to as just delivery teams. Those are teams basically that have a product owner, and I use that term intentionally. They're not product managers. All they are is a backlog administrator. 
They almost never have a designer and they just have a set of developers and they are just there to crank out code. If you've heard of processes like safe or less, that's all they are. They're delivery teams. I don't know a single tech product company that uses that model, but a lot of non-sophisticated companies use them. Bank, yeah. insurance companies, and places that frankly have no clue. Feature teams and product teams look alike. What, by that, I mean they have a product manager, they usually yeah. have a designer, and they have some number of developers, usually somewhere between two and 10 developers. So superficially, they look alike. In Spotify terms, they both have squads, real squads. The difference is in a feature team, the team is given a roadmap of typically features and projects. That's why they're called feature teams. So the difference is they're given these features to build. What that means in practice is they have to design that feature. That's why they have a designer. If it's complicated, they may do some usability testing on that design to make sure users can use it. And then it goes on the backlog and they build it. So they're doing some usability work, some design work, and then engineering. If yeah. that feature doesn't actually solve whatever underlying business problem there was, well, it's not on them really because they were just building the feature that some executive told them they needed to build. Yeah. So that's why we say a feature team is focused on output, those features, versus a product team, which is instead of being given a roadmap of features, they are given problems to solve, customer problems, business problems to solve. They are held accountable now to those results. So if the issue is we're not getting enough international purchases on our e-commerce site, that's a problem to solve. If you're a feature team, it's probably some executive says, oh, well, we should try adding Afterpay or we should try adding PayPal. And that's a feature. The other thing I should call out, and, and I realize this is going to sound a little harsh, but in a feature team, you really don't need a product manager. You need a project manager because that's what's going on. You're, you're sort of shepherding the feature to the designer and then passing it over to the engineers. That's yeah. project management. I think that's necessary. I'm not saying that's wasteful, but it's not product management. In an empowered product team, it's a much harder problem because now we have to actually figure out a solution that works. In that product team model, the product manager is explicitly responsible for making sure that what you build is valuable, people will buy it or choose to use it, and viable. It will work for our business. Google has empowered product teams, but they also have an eight-step process to get into Google that tests you through strategy, product design, analytics, and they have a large volume of folks applying to Google and only a few get through. Would you be able to talk about examples of where you have normal talent that through some coaching has been able to be trusted to be an empowered product team? Well, not only do I have examples of that, I actually have examples of that in going to Google. Um, one of the things that really has always frustrated me is like, why don't more companies work like that? And one of the reasons you often get is well, like, we can't get the same caliber people they do. And I'm like, look, I know those people. That is not what's going on. And so I'm a big believer that, and you know, by the way, Google has changed their interview process countless times. I mean, in radical ways, but 
you know, they try hard to look for certain things, but it's not as hard as you think, I think, to get in there. The real question is, what do they do once you get there? And the short answer is they coach you. The managers take coaching seriously. And the big thing that most people struggle with is they're, they're in the job of a product manager, but there is nobody at their company that is actually knows how to do that well and can spend time with them to show them how. I read your piece that you wrote in 2007, I believe, on hiring good product managers. This is something that I get asked all the time. Is there a process that you recommend to hire PMs that are more likely going to be successful as an empowered PM? Is there a case-based method or is there anything that commonality that you've seen that works to hire the type of people that are going to be successful in an empowered team where you can trust them to, to take on that outcomes as opposed to output? Yeah. It's always been a hard position to interview for because it's not like computer science, right? Where there's a program, computer science program, or even a product design program where you know the person has gone through a set of curriculum. Of course, one of the easiest ways to do that is to hire somebody that comes from a good product company that has demonstrated that they know how to do what we're talking about. The real question though is what do you do when you can't find that person or the person you're considering doesn't actually have those credentials yet. You're making a bet on them. And I I like to break it into two uh, scenarios. One, the normal scenario is we need to determine if this person has the competencies they need to be successful. So I think we know what to look for. And then we can do a gap analysis. We can coach them on the gaps. And that's how most people are hired. But I'm also a fan of some of my favorite hires are like university hires absolutely no experience at all. In that case, what you're doing is making a real bet on their potential. Now, I I never recommend doing that kind of hire unless the hiring manager has the time and willingness to invest very heavily in developing that person. There's a terrific track record of identifying very high potential people, putting them through very heavy coaching. In fact, if you've ever heard of Google's or many companies, APM program, the uh, Associate Product Manager program, that is what it's about. It's about identifying very high potential people. They don't have to be from college. They could be from anywhere in the company. And then putting them in a very intense coaching program, it's meant to turn you into a rock star. And I love that. I'm a big fan of that. I encourage many companies to create those programs. What's the risk? for companies that don't take on the power product team model? Well, the risk for them is uh, dying. I mean, I don't even say that lightly. It's happening in industry after industry. I recently wrote an article about the difference in the two kinds of companies in my simple view of the world. Those that really get technology and those that don't. I actually referenced probably one of the most important essays in our industry's history, which is the essay by Mark Andreessen, Software is Eating the World. I had reread that essay. It's from a decade ago, but I reread it and I'm like, it's still incredibly relevant. Most companies still don't get it, but the ones that do are literally disrupting industries one after the other. Because he is saying, this is what will happen if you don't take this seriously. Now, what's always hard, I've learned my lesson years ago, when a company's dying, that could take 20 years to die. You know, it's a death by a thousand cuts. 
this is what happens if you start stop innovating, you start that long, slow process of dying. I think I understand the reasons companies sort of gravitate to feature teams and stuff, but no, I, I really think this is uh, the difference between the companies that will thrive going forward and those that won't. In Toronto, we have a high number of B2B companies and they're B2B enterprise companies. There was an article written in first round about a product manager that joined an enterprise B2B company from Google, tried to implement the same practices of you know not committing to anything past a couple of months. That failed in the enterprise company because customers that are buying software that costs hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars want to know what your one-year, two-year roadmap is. The switching costs are just too high for them to not know that. And so there's a clash of, you know, in B2B company, the outcome is getting the sale and the sales gotten by having a strategic roadmap. Whereas I know that, you know, you've written a lot about not having committing to longer term roadmaps and dates. Yes. So we need to be clear because really two things going on here. Is it reasonable for a prospective customer before they spend thousands or even millions of dollars to want to know where you are heading in order to know if they want to go there with you? Is that reasonable? To me, absolutely it's reasonable. The, a different question is, is a roadmap the best way to provide that? And the answer, I would argue, absolutely not. And, and the truth is the roadmap doesn't even tell them what they want to know because the roadmap just shows a bunch of features that may or may not work and a horizon at best is a couple years out. They really, yeah. They're making a much bigger decision than that. What they really want to see, don't get me wrong, the word they all know to say is roadmap. So yeah. they won't put it in these words, but what they want to see is the product vision. And I actually am more than comfortable sharing that product vision because I want to validate that vision. Bezos has this great line. And by the way, Amazon is a company that has absolutely succeeded with consumers and with enterprises. And yeah. this idea of vision, his, one of his quote here is, be stubborn on your vision, but flexible on your details. I love that. If you share the roadmap, you are not flexible with details anymore because now you've got commitments probably for things you're going to find you don't even want to do anymore, but it's too late. However, the vision is what they're buying into. And of course, a lot of those enterprise companies, they have no vision. You know, whenever I hear somebody complain to me that they're a sales-driven organization, that is usually because they are weak in product. And so we need to get their product organization doing what they need to do, which starts with product vision. And Absolutely. Taking that vision out to the prospects or customers and sharing that vision and making sure that that vision is where they want to go to. Yeah. That's awesome. You know, in your 30 years of coaching, what's that one thing or skill set that you think product managers need to develop? Not product leaders, but product managers. Where are they falling short? Uh, what's that What's that thing that they, they have to do better of? Well, it's hard to say. Well, I'll tell you why. I don't want to just sound like a cop out here. This is why okay. the first thing I do when I coach a product manager is I do an assessment of that product manager. And I shared with you that developing strong product managers, you can see the rubric for assessing. That's what I yeah. use. And the reason I say that is because everybody's different. 
some people bring different strengths to the table. Let's say that, you know, a classic sort of pattern is they're coming from engineering. They probably have a big advantage on the technology, but they may be and probably are clueless on the business, clueless on finance, clueless on customers. So we have to fix that. On the other hand, let's say we get some brilliant mind from business development. So they probably have a very good understanding of the business, a very good understanding of finance, no clue on technology, no clue about design, working with engineers. So we have to focus there. I don't have any trouble picking the most important thing for any individual person, but it's hard to say in general. Somebody asked me, okay, we we know we're a feature team and we don't like that. She said, what, what's the one thing we should do, most important thing to become a real product team? And I thought about it for a while and I wrote, it, wrote my answer, which was, you need to move to the model of empowered engineers. To me, the single most important thing in a product team is this notion of an empowered engineer. Because every single innovation I know, there is an empowered engineer behind it. This is also why feature teams almost never innovate because the engineers are not empowered. They're mercenaries. They're there to build the feature that somebody else dreamed up. So in an empowered engineer, they are given problems to solve. The whole product team is given problems to solve, and then they can figure out the best way to solve that problem. And I would argue that's the most important element of a real product team. If you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to subscribe and check us out at productfaculty.com, where we offer the number one ranked product management course for experienced product managers, product leaders, and product executives. Thank you.